Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Alongside me is commissioning editor and fromagier, Thena Lina Thea. Thea. <laughs> Stop correcting my pronunciation. I'm not talking about your pronunciation this week. I'm talking it's not about pronunciation, your pronunciation. Chi- it's just wrong. This is wrong. It's just a but different we're not, name. We're not focusing on your pronunciation, Thea Lena Dutzi. We're talking about your cheese interest because there was a review in this week in a rival literary magazine, which I shall not name, of a book called something like The Big Bumper Book of Cheese. <laughs> The Oxford Companion to Cheese. So you know it. I do. And have we had a review of it in the TLS? We haven't, but it's not because we missed it. It's because we were not sent it. Wow. And I that that's being that's that's being worked on. That's I've, a bl- I've that- commissioned it. I think I think probably what's happened is whoever edited the volume was too afraid to send it my way, yeah. lest I go through it and remove all mentions of cheddar. English cheese. <laughs> if you've not heard a previous podcast, Thea has a has, a, has an objection, a philosophical, ideological objection to English cheeses. That's absolutely untrue. Some of my favourite cheeses are British cheeses. But at a Christmas party, you removed all the English cheeses or just something? Just the cheddar. Just the cheddar. So you're still a fromager, and evidently you're still a pronunciation guru, as I'm, I'm not allowed to mispronounce your name by saying something <laughs> completely wrong. Make sure you're following this podcast on Twitter, at FBFM underscore podcast, and please do reviewers on iTunes. And if you want to subscribe to the TLS... Google TLS subscriptions and type pod1 in the offer code section. You can get six issues for £6. Coming up on the show this week, following the release of I Am Not Your Negro, a film about James Baldwin, we have a wonderful piece on Baldwin by his biographer, James Campbell. And we consider the English translation of a German book called Crimes Unspoken, a controversial treatment of allegations of the rape of thousands of German women by Russian and Western soldiers at the end of the Second World War. Jane Yeager has reviewed it and will be joining us. And we shall also be discussing a new book by Michael Rosen on what happened to Emile Zola after he published the most famous piece of journalism in French history, the Jacques Open Letter in Defence of Alfred Dreyfus. I'm not going to give the spoiler as to where he went, but it's not where you'd expect James Baldwin, the black American novelist and essayist, poet and social critic, had an endlessly frustrated relationship with the movies. 
In 1955, in the foreword to his first essay collection, he referred to his only interest as the morbid desire to own a 16mm camera and make experimental films. In 1976, he wrote a book-length essay on the roles assigned, in often racist fashion, to black people in American cinema. As James Campbell notes in his tremendous essay on Baldwin this week, the years between those two comments were plump with film projects but starved of fulfilment. He wrote several screenplays that were never made. He had an ultimately fruitless agreement with Marlon Brando to take a part in a movie version of Giovanni's Room. And he tried to write a screenplay about Malcolm X, which ended when the latter was assassinated. So the credit in I Am Not Your Negro, as written by James Baldwin, is rather poignant but not entirely accurate. It is a film version of a book project devised in 1979 for Baldwin to write his thoughts on three murdered civil rights activists, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X and Medgar Evers. That book didn't come off either, and so the film is a compression and rearrangement of Baldwin's words, a cultural artefact inspired by him, but not his own. James Campbell joins Thea and me now to assess the film and to help us reassess, perhaps, James Baldwin. Uh, Let's start with the film. Uh, You call it only a partial representation of a complex life. What does it get right, I suppose, and what does it miss? What it gets right is including James Baldwin in the film, for one thing, because Baldwin had a tremendous presence on screen and had the gift of being himself in front of the camera, which is an unusual gift. Not everyone can do that. He was superbly articulate. He had a wonderful presence and a wonderful sense of timing. In every inch of footage that you see of Baldwin, whether it's included in this film or not, you're immediately thrilled the moment that the camera focuses on him. Um, So he's got that magnetic presence that great film stars have, actually. And lots of people who watch this film will never have seen James Baldwin at all. So one of the virtues of the film will be look at this guy and kind of enjoy that, enjoy how much the camera loves him. Yes, indeed. And, and it is really worth going to see. It's an admirable film in many ways, but it's worth going to see for that alone. And people who don't know much about Baldwin, I hope, will come out of the cinema, go straight to a bookshop and buy some books by Baldwin because at his best, he is as impressive on the page as he is on the screen. So, so what does it miss then? You, you say it's partial. So you, we get a sense of the Baldwin man because there's this footage of him. There's, you, you, you see the man before your eyes. What bits does it omit? Well, Baldwin was a complex character, a many-layered character. One of the things that I felt that it missed was any deep investigation or probing of his relationship with Martin Luther King. The, the film is, after all, about a a book that he was planning to write about Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King. The, the main hero of those three was definitely King. Now, when I was writing my biography of Baldwin, I was the first to persuade the FBI to release his uh, FBI files. And one of the many interesting things about that emerged from those files was that uh, King himself and his team generally at the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, were rather wary of Baldwin and were wary of Baldwin's involvement in the civil rights struggles of the early 60s. Is that because he was gay? That was because he was gay. King referred to the poetic exaggeration of Baldwin's style, which was a rather genteel way of 
referring to his mannerisms. He wasn't. He was sometimes camp, and in in those days, we're talking about sixty two, sixty three, sixty four. It wasn't necessarily good publicity for rather conservative civil rights leaders to have someone who was openly homosexual, as Baldwin was. Did Baldwin know he was being judged that way by King and the civil rights no, people? No, he didn't. There are various FBI documents which refer to conversations which were being held by King and his associates. In other words, they were being wiretapped yeah. or there were informers present, in which Baldwin's civil rights strategy was ridiculed and there was a rather unkind joke about Martin Luther Queen. Whether they liked Baldwin or not, personally, it was felt that this association would not be good publicity. Do you think the decision to not include all of that backstory in, in the present film, do you think that's a choice for simplification, or do you think that has to do with legacy in the way that we're now looking to kind of absorb it or position Baldwin? Well... To be fair to the filmmaker, it's not a biopic. Cinema, by its nature, is economical and has to keep moving. But I do think that for completeness, there might have been some kind of allusion to that. Now, my view is, as someone who has had dealings with the James Baldwin estate, who were notoriously controlling, I would suspect that that might have had something to do with it. You talk about how these three men were kind of heroes to, to, to Baldwin. How did that affect his prose? Because he, he was trying to write a book about them. Do you think there was a connection between, you use a couple of lovely phrases in, in, in the piece, the connection between what happened when Martin Luther King or Malcolm X, particularly when he was killed, did that affect Baldwin's style or his, even, his ability as a prose writer? It undoubtedly did. Even before then, his involvement in politics affected his prose style, even in the early 60s, even before any of those assassinations took place. And just to count them out, Medgar Evers was killed in 1963, Malcolm X by the Nation of Islam in 1965, and King in 68. But even before then, Baldwin's involvement in politics was influencing his writing. People criticised him later, by the, by the mid-60s, someone like Norman Mailer, for example, criticised him for becoming too involved in politics, but he would reply, I had no choice. This was the great event of the 20th century, as far as black Americans were concerned, and he couldn't stay out of it. But the assassinations, especially the, the second and the third of Malcolm and Martin, really caused more or less a nervous breakdown. And by 68, Baldwin was an emergency case. Uh, he was in hospital in Paris. He had, he had a collapse. He had a nervous collapse. He, com he att attempted suicide. And he recovered by going into a kind of semi-exile in the south of France. Which was uh, a word that you say he, he struggled. He didn't, he didn't like that word like, to be He didn't like it. Uh, well, people would come to visit and they would say, well, Mr. Baldwin, uh, the struggle continues, but you're living down here in exile in the, in the sunny south of France. And he would say, well, I'm not in exile. It rains down here too, you know. You knew Baldwin personally, and you met him in, in the south of France. Tell us the story of that. Well, I was a, was a reader of Baldwin in, in Edinburgh when I was a student in the mid-'70s, and I was uh, immediately smitten by his writing. He became, for lack of a better term, my favourite writer. 
and I was kind of known for going around Edinburgh bars with paperbacks stuffed <laughs> in my pockets and reading them over lonely pints and quoting bits out of them and so on. When I left university, I became the editor of a magazine, a quarterly magazine called the New Edinburgh Review, and I wrote to Baldwin and asked if he would write about jazz for my magazine. And it took about three months for him to reply, but when he did, he wrote back and said, would love to do a long piece, can't meet the deadline. <laughs> uh, well, of course, there was no deadline, but um, he said to call him in the south of France, and so I did. And he said, I'd love to do that, baby, I'd love to do that. <laughs> so I said, well, this is fantastic. And then we did set a deadline, and, uh, but I said one thing to him, I said, there's something I must say, and that's this magazine doesn't have very much money. And then he said a wonderful thing, he said, there was a pause. He said, who mentioned money? <laughs> we did set a deadline of the 1st of July, as I say in that piece. I called him on that day, and he said, I'm working on it, baby, I'm working on it. Call me Tuesday. And so I called him on Tuesday. He said, I'm working on it, baby, I'm working on it. Call me Friday. And I would call him on Friday. He said, I'm working on it, baby, but it's very hot down here. Anyway, we got the cover of the magazine printed, and we put uh, his photograph on it. And I called him, I think it was about the 10th time. He said, I'm working on it, baby. And I said, well, that's great, because uh, we've got the cover printed, we've got your photograph on it. He said, I'm on the cover. I said, well, of course you're on the cover. <laughs> he said, oh, baby, I better get to work. And then I think he wrote it very quickly. But it, it was good, and I quoted it in this piece, and uh, I was happy with it. And how long after that did you go to meet him there? Well, he invited me to uh, drop by in Saint-Paul-de-Vence if I was ever down this way, as people say. Um, and he must have said that to lots of people, but I set off for Saint-Paul-de-Vence. <laughs> I wasn't going to turn down that um, opportunity. And um, he was tremendously friendly, welcoming and um, hospitable, and I stayed for almost a week. I kept offering to go. I'm a well-brought-up Scottish boy. But uh, they would say, no, why don't you hang around, man? There's a party on Saturday night. And I would go to this party with James Baldwin in a taxi. And uh, and how did that feel, Jim? Was that a moment where you... I, mean, I, did, I thought I was in some kind of dream. And um, then I went on a second occasion, and I mentioned this here. And he talked about the, the triple biography, Remember This House. He talked about it a lot. And I should have asked to read it because he gave me other things to read but I do remember one day, it was the afternoon, and lunch at the Baldwin place was at three, three o'clock in the afternoon, and it lasted for two hours. And then he said he had to go downstairs to work, to work on the Martin, Medgar, and uh, Malcolm book. I said, I'll go up to the, the village to have a beer. And he immediately said, I'll come with you. <laughs> and we walked up, it was about a quarter of a mile walk up to St. Paul de Vence, and um, on the way up there, he started singing a blues the How Long Blues. And I'm walking up the hill with James Baldwin in the south of France, and he's singing the blues. I just thought, my life is never going to get better than this. Until you get that beer with him. <laughs> well, we had many beers. We're going to have to leave again. I could listen to you tell stories about um, James Baldwin all day. Um, you said at the beginning you wanted people to see the film and go and either discover or rediscover Baldwin. If, if you wanted to direct some people who might be listening to this who don't know very much Baldwin, what should they go and read? Definitely a couple of books of essays. Nobody Knows My Name is uh, my favourite book. It's his second collection of essays. The Fire Next Time is a wonderful book. 
It's partly about the Nation of Islam and about Malcolm X. But when it comes to fiction, my favorite is Another Country, published in 62, which top of the bestseller list. And it's a sprawling novel. It takes in various racial, sexual permutations, just about every kind you can imagine. But it's got a great feeling of New York. It's a very lively novel. It's long and you get into it. That's the novel I would recommend. Well, you put him on the cover of uh, your magazine and it's, it's lovely to have him on the cover of the TLS this week. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much indeed. In February 1898, little more than a month after Emile Zola's evisceration of the French establishment made the front pages, Zola was himself hauled in front of the justices. In return for exposing endemic corruption and anti-Semitism, particularly in the upper echelons of the army, the novelist was prosecuted for libel and swiftly found guilty. To avoid imprisonment, he fled to, well, nobody was quite sure at first. There were rumours that he was in Brussels, in Holland, Geneva, Rome or Berlin. He was, in fact, moving between Upper Norwood, about seven miles south from where we're sitting today, and leafy, sleepy Weybridge in Surrey. But the suburban lifestyle did little to lull Zola, who was petrified that someone would recognise him or that the French authorities would find him and drag him back to jail. Michael Rosen has, has written an account of this strange and difficult interlude in Zola's life and career called The Disappearance of Emi Zola. We're covering it in this week's paper and Michael joins us on the phone to discuss it now. Um, Michael, perhaps, perhaps you can begin by telling us how Zola, one of, one of France's, indeed Europe's most celebrated authors, came to be at Victoria Station with no luggage and even less knowledge, I think, of the English language. I mean, in other words, why England? Who, who had arranged this? The immediate reason was because his publisher, Charpentier, and his editor at the newspaper L'Aurore, which had uh, published J'accuse, convinced him that he ought to get out, that he ought to leave France immediately, uh, because if he served his conviction, which was uh, one year imprisonment and 3,000 francs, it would be a great distraction from the prime reason for writing J'accuse, which, which was to bring Captain Alfred Dreyfus back from Devil's Island. That was the prime purpose of Zola writing J'accuse and indeed provoking uh, the French authorities to accuse him of libel. So when he, as it were, received the sentence, Zola himself said, I'm prepared to serve it. He was nearly 60 at the time. Uh, but his friend said, no, get out. And they <laughs> handed him his nightshirt wrapped in a newspaper and a baguette, of course, uh, un -pain. <laughs> and um, off he went on what we used to call the boat train. And uh, he arrived at Victoria, as you say, uh, very early in the morning. This is June because it was a retrial. The first trial was in February, as you said, mm -hmm. and then there was a retrial and he, he was losing that. So, and his lawyer as well said, go on, go, shoot. Mm. And, and so then when he was, in, when he was settled in, in England, well, as settled as he, as he was, what kind of life did he lead? I mean, he, he, was, he was removed from society. He wasn't mingling with uh, Thomas Hardy or, or Henry no. James. Indeed. Um, well, it was quite isolated in the sense that he uh, didn't want to see guests. He didn't want to see very many people. One or two came to see him. And the only people that he saw was a very small, intimate group, his translator, Ernest Vizitelli, um, and Desmoulins, his friend, who was an engraver, and occasionally one or two others came over from France. But his other company, uh, Zola had uh, a rather interesting domestic arrangements. 
he was to all purposes a bigamist. He had two women in his life who he regarded as equals. That was his wife, Alexandrine, and the person who is usually called a mistress, but I don't like the word myself, Jeanne Rosereau, with whom he had two children. And they alternated. They came out. Uh, first, Jeanne came out with the children, then she went back, then Alexandrine came out twice and went back, and then uh, Jeanne came out at the end. So um, sometimes he was uh, on his own. He was just with probably just seeing Ernest Vizatelli, his translator. Mm. And the, the letters that he wrote to his his, his women, yes. um, they, they give us a sense of the, the dynamic, I suppose. Indeed. Uh, these uh, hadn't been translated before. They, they exist in uh, the Complete Correspondence or as uh, Lettres à Jean Rosereau. And... Um, it, it, they do. They provide a tremendous insight into Zola himself as to kind of what person he was, what kind of a loving partner he was to the two women. He addressed them in the identical way, cher femme, even though one was only only one of them was the legal femme. Um, and he also writes to his two children. We don't often get an insight into kind of a late 19th century uh, paterfamilias talking to his children, and he treats them very differently. One's a boy, one's a girl. The boy, he's in a, Zola is in a state of blind panic that he only gets 13 sur 20, he only gets 13 out of 20 for his, <laughs> for his marks, <laughs> c'est not. And um, the, girl, the girl, Denise, uh, who went on to become a writer of children's books, Denise Aubert, she called herself, um, he's more concerned with whether she's um, playing the piano properly, I think. Whether she'll find a good husband. And, of course, <laughs> whether she will be a, a bonne femme, yes, indeed. <laughs> why, why, was he, why did he become involved in, in, in the Dreyfus scandal? Why was he so motivated by this sort of spectre of establishment anti-Semitism? Yes, well, to, to a certain extent, it's a mystery. Here is, you know, Europe's possibly the, the world's most famous writer. He's, he's got the Rougon Macquart cycle of novels, 15 of them behind him, Thérèse Raquin, Nana, L'Assommoir... They're behind him. He's been translated all over the world. He is both scandalous uh, in one sense, but greatly admired for his literary qualities and so on. And he then has a little route to writing some other kinds of novels. And then we've got to put the context of France at this time is divided down the middle. This is an atmosphere that is very difficult to recreate. I mean, you might say it happens again in, say, in Germany in the 1920s, but there was at least half of France saw the main problem for France as being the they'd been caused by the Jews as a unit, who were otherwise known as le syndicat, the syndicate. And you had parties that called themselves anti-Semitic. It was like a word that you could boast and say, this is what we are. There was a league of anti-Semites uh, led by someone called Edouard Brumont, who wrote uh, La France Juive, never been translated into English, you know, all France's woes caused by the Jews. Zola, probably under the influence of a guy called Bernard Lazare, wrote perhaps one of the first and strongest public anti-anti-Semitic articles that had ever been written up until that point uh, in the newspaper, which he called Pour les Juifs, for the Jews or on behalf of the Jews. And it, it's, a, it's a tract, if you like, that is equivalent to the one that Jean-Paul Sartre produces after the war against anti-Semitism. And, and Zola produces that, and as a result of producing that, the people who are supporting Dreyfus uh, approach him and say, will you support the pro-Dreyfus campaign? And at first Zola says no, then they approach him again, largely through this character, excuse me, Bernard Lazare, 
And the second time, Zola says yes. Why he said yes is some speculation about it. Ruth Harris, in her tremendous book on the Dreyfus case, it does attribute some egotism to Zola that he saw a kind of drama in it and was attracted to it. I would like to think that Zola was an utterly committed Republican. And the reason why is because, yes, he had absolutist beliefs. And for the Anglophone world, it's quite hard to understand this in truth, justice, just as the French motto is liberté, égalité, fraternité, these great abstractions that the Anglophone world sometimes kind of slightly retreats from, Zola had this passion for truth and justice and felt that France was going down the plug hole, really, as a result of this fraudulent trial. And so he joins in. But prior to that, he's also motivated by the injustice of anti-Semitism. I think the two things come together, quite apart from whether he was an egotistical sort of a person. I mean, as you say, it didn't have the desired effect immediately. And so he, he came away, he, he was he was sort of exiled in, in England. And then things changed and he went back. And I guess I'd like to know what happened then when he was finally al- allowed to return to France. How how did he feel? How was he greeted mm. by the French on, on it his It wasn't return? so much that Zola was allowed back, because don't forget he's technically still guilty. So what happened was that while he's in England, he's informed that there's going to be a retrial of Dreyfus. That was good enough for Zola to say, I've had enough of (laughs) sitting out here in England, as you say, in Upper Norwood, uh, next to the Crystal Palace. I want to come home. So he comes back. Technically, he's guilty. I think he's served the writ, uh, or he's warned that he's going to be served the writ almost immediately. But then Dreyfus is retried. Now, everyone was convinced at this point that Dreyfus would then be pardoned. He would be found not guilty um, because they knew who had written the piece of paper that had incriminated Dreyfus in the first place. And it wasn't Dreyfus, it was someone else called Esterhazy. And so they thought, well, of course, Dreyfus is going to get off. But he didn't. In the famous trial at Rennes, it went three to two against Dreyfus. And so he was found guilty with extenuating circumstances, that we'd say in English. And whereupon the uproar was so great that the president intervened and pardoned Dreyfus. This infuriated Zolo, pointing out, of course, he's got nothing to be pardoned for. And anyway, he saw it as a ruse to get all those people who had basically framed Dreyfus to get them off. The next phase, a little bit later, by another president, was to grant an amnesty to everybody. And again, this infuriated Zola because it meant that the people he felt were guilty, the true guilty ones, the chiefs of staff of the army, and indeed some of the people in government, they wouldn't face trial. So he, at that point, Zola himself received an amnesty not all that long before Zola himself died. Do you think that Zola's sufficiently regarded as a hero of free speech? Because what he did do, he had his reputation, and whether egotistical or not, he put it on the line to defend an unpopular cause, daring a pernicious libel action against him, which subsequently was served and he was then convicted. Uh, Is he regarded in France today and more widely as this sort of hero of of free speech? In France, he has been and he is, yes. I mean, in most towns in France, you will see Rue Emile Zola. So his name is known. Uh, If you stay on in the sixth form and doing arts and humanities in France, you will read one of his novels. Everybody knows that phrase, j'accuse, and knows that, that Zola stood up for this. 
the exact details they may not know, and they may not know of the, the legacy or legacies of the Dreyfus case still burning today. Um, but I think he is. I think the problem is perhaps really outside of France. Uh, obviously, most of us read Zola in translation, and our knowledge of Zola ends there. You know, we watch TV versions of uh, Germinal or Thérèse Raquin sometimes put on the stage. I think uh, Kira Knightley did it recently. And that's it, really. Um, even if we know the phrase j'accuse, we may not necessarily attach it to this guy who wrote um, lovely novels. You know, it, yeah. it, it's all a bit disconnected. But then, you know, literature does get... It doesn't always travel national borders, I'm trying to say. Mm, I suppose now seems a, perhaps a particularly apt time to remember all of this, not only because last year marked the centenary of, of Dreyfus's exoneration, but also because we're about to... We're waiting to see whether a party with a long history of anti-Semitism will sweep through the first round of elections in France. And those, those that first round is April the 23rd, which one can't help but point out is Holocaust Remembrance Day. Indeed, and in some respects, it's even worse than that. The signal that uh, Marine Le Pen put out on Sunday was very, very significant. Mm -hmm. She was basically trying to say to the French people that, you know, we have been carrying this burden of having collaborated with the Nazis, I want to relieve you of this burden. It wasn't France. Now, part of this was uh, kind of verbal dexterity because, according to de Gaulle and indeed Mitterrand later, is that Vichy France was not France. De Gaulle, being sitting in London, that was France. That was the continuation of La République. That's the sort of thing she was playing with. But what she was also doing was saying that those French people who were responsible for putting 76,000 Jews on trains to be deported to concentration camps, this wasn't France's fault. This was the power, that, what she called rather euphemistically, the power at the time, in other words, the Nazis who had occupied. But she was saying that people like Bousquet and Darquier and Laval, who were mad, crazy anti-Semites, who had indeed, Darquier in particular, speculated of a, a Jew-free France, as he would have put it, these people were so delighted that the Nazis gave them the power and the excuse to do it, that in a sense, I, I know they could, for example, they commanded all the prefects and sub-prefects in Vichy France to compile lists of foreign-born Jews, amongst whom were my father's uncles. Now, this was done because those French authorities wanted to. Now, it may not be France, in inverted commas, the real France. So that's the kind of game that Madame Le Pen is playing, almost in a way of saying, rather like Trump saying, look, all this PC stuff, it's, it's a bind. We don't have to be that. We don't have to talk, be nice to people like this. In a sense, you say, this stuff... We're not guilty of that stuff in the past, so we're free to be racist now. That's how I see it. And also, you make a point that at the time of Dreyfus, there was a, an establishment pitched against a single religion in the form of anti-Semitism. And, and in many ways, Le Pen is making her case as being at the anti-Islamification of France. She, she's, she's, very in, she's clear about that, isn't she? Oh, indeed. And... In a sense, you can say there's a double arc. It's like a bridge with two arches that you go from Dreyfus to Vichy and from Vichy to Le Front National, Madame Le Pen's party, that was Jean-Marie Le Pen's party, that there's this arch because the people who 
in a sense, were at the root of Vichy France, had, were themselves the anti-Dreyfusards. And then when you say who was there at the founding of the Front National, the answer is it was some of the people who had been around at Vichy. So history plays a lot in all this. And indeed, there are people in France who will insist that Dreyfus was guilty. There are still people on the fringe of politics. And it has to be said, the army itself in France, I know it's anomalous, but technically the army has never found Dreyfus innocent. It was the state that found Dreyfus innocent that, if you like, offered the pardoning and the, in, the amnesties and so on. It's never been the army. Mm. Um, the army was forced to take Dreyfus back in. And indeed, Dreyfus, he always wanted to be tried by his, retried by his fellow officers so that they, in a sense, would have to eat humble pie. Dreyfus served in the First World War mm. and lived on till 1935. I mean... Uh, it's extraordinary. He wanted to be a great French patriot. I mean, that he succeeded in doing, but he was Absolutely. technically never found innocent by the army. Well, thank you. Um, it's, I mean, it's been fascinating and, and troubling, I think, to, to speak to you, Michael. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for your Thanks time. Thank you very much for having me. There's a bit at the end of... Um, because I, I should say, and Nicholas White is, is reviewing this book by Michael Rosen in, in the issue, and there's um, there's an interesting bit at the end where he, where White says that every year on the first Sunday of October, all of these Zola files get together and, and undertake this pilgrimage to Zola's old country house, and they commemorate his death with and there's a, an address every year given by a different political figure or, or intellectual figure. And when you look at the list of, of, of speakers, we've had François Mitterrand, Jacques Chirac, and then last year we had François Hollande, who did it. And it's really there that you, you see the legacy of, of the Dreyfus affair and Zola's involvement in it. But you wonder how deep it goes. And it is, it is petrifying to hear that there are still people out there who, who don't accept that it was all a corrupt uh, it, miscarriage of justice. I think it's probably become a punchline. Mm. You know, just j'accuse, it's just become a thing. It's become a cliche. Yeah. And you know, the most anti-cliche thing ever, as it was, this this incredibly bold front page, a, a deliberate libel mm. in the sense of he knew what was coming and he he took that on deliberately. And now j'accuse is just used to explain anything away. You know, j'accuse, yeah. it's just become a cliche. It's it's funny how it's lost its heft. And I do wonder outside of, uh, of France, but even within France, I don't know how much free speech is a hugely embraced by by most people in, in France and outside France. You know, is it recognised? Well, I mean, of course, that's, a, that's an incredibly hot area when you think of recent events in Paris. Well, um, indeed. That and that's what it was precisely, it was the same, you know, it was all part of the same difficult area. You about Charlie, not to, Charlie Hebdo. Yeah. Charlie, and, and this is what I do think was interesting about this, when you we go back to this notion of anti-Semitism, it's, this, it's focus on one religion. And I suspect anti-Semitism isn't a problem in France in the way that it was 100-odd years ago, but relations with another religion, with the Islamic mm. religion, is at the very heart of French political discourse. Mm -hmm. And it's the thing that gives Le Pen legitimacy and the mm. things that gives her a chance in these forthcoming elections. Mm. She, she said, "This is I want France to return to the French, and she has a very clear definition of what that, what the that, French what, are, what the, what Fren the French is, yeah, what, the what Fren France is. Exactly. Scary stuff. Mm. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In 2015, the German journalist and historian Miriam Gebhardt published a book, Als die Soldaten kamen, an expose of what she considered to be a little discussed aspect of the Second World War how large numbers of German women and girls have been raped not only by the Red Army of Russia, but by Western Allied soldiers too. It contained the remarkable and disputable calculation that the occupying armies had committed a total of 860,000 rapes throughout Germany in the decade after the war, of which the Americans were responsible for 190,000 and the French 50,000. The book has now been translated into English with the title Crimes Unspoken and reviewed in the paper this week by Jane Yeager, who joins Thea and me now. Jane, perhaps we might start with this very striking figure and the methodology around it. There's some controversy around Gebhardt's methodology for making these calculations about the scale of the rapes. Yes, there had been a sort of historical consensus that the number of rapes committed by the Red Army was somewhere between one and two million. And this whole question of rapes committed by soldiers of the Western Allied armies, it's sort of an emerging field of research, a small field of research. It's only very recently been researched at all, but the few historians who had put forth numbers had said something more like 10 or 11,000 rapes committed by the U.S. Army, for example. So her numbers were really far afield from this. The method of calculation that she used was based on records in West Germany. As of 1955, I believe there were 1,900 occupation children officially registered as having been fathered by U.S. soldiers who were officially recorded as having been conceived through violence. And she just multiplied this number by 100 based on a claim that 5% of the rapes would have resulted in pregnancy and one out of five of those would have resulted in a child. And she, um, and she then rode back from it slightly in, in a way that to me, not knowing a vast amount about this case, 
it's kind of shocking. She said the calculations were merely an invitation to readers to contemplate alternative ways of calculating figures. That's not really acceptable for a historian to, to say that, is it? It seems like an extraordinary thing to say. Yes, there, there, there were certainly people in, in Germany who, who said what you're saying. And I feel like the reason that this was, was sort of discussed seriously at all has to do with a sense of unknowability in any method of trying to calculate something like this so much later. This is just so belated. It's 70 years later. Well, it's a speculative extrapolation is what she's yeah, done, isn't she? Yeah, and I, mean, I mean, it's several layers of extrapolation in her... Um, in her, uh, what she refers to as her calculation method. Well, I mean, and it's clearly, it's clearly not just the calculations that make this a controversial book. So, I mean, I, I wonder oh, yeah. if we can look at why, why has, why has Germany found it so hard to confront this particular aspect of the history? There are several reasons for that. The sort of uh, general discomfort of the, the topic of sexual assault, and I think that although Germans are often more frank about discussing uncomfortable topics than certain other cultures that doesn't necessarily extend to rape victims uh, telling firsthand stories of their experiences. But uh, more specifically in this case, uh, there's a real wariness on the part of the German mainstream, or there has been, about speaking about um, experiences of German suffering during the Nazi era because of the way that the far right has used experiences of German suffering, both this mass rape and the expulsion of ethnic Germans from East Central Europe at the end of the war, to sort of minimize or downplay the Holocaust or to engage in some sort of moral offsetting as if these horrors sort of cancel each other out. And then the, the other issue is the idea that there could be anything that still needs to be talked about later, that there could be any lingering trauma, went against the kind of narrative that West Germany in particular constructed about itself after the war and that it, post-war West Germany was very invested in, that war rape was, if it was viewed through a lens that not of, of individual experiences of, of suffering on the part of the victims, but as a sort of political metaphor of the humiliation of the defeated nation, then if the nation is no longer defeated, it's sort of threatening to this narrative for people to say we're not done with this story about what happened to us during the war. There's a, there's a racial context that I don't think the book really brings out, but you're, you, you do in, in, in your review, where effectively a lot of the assailants were... were said to be black it was wrongly said to be black it almost became a narrative out of this that if an american was over in germany it was a, it was likely to be a black american doing this yeah it's just like really striking how obsessive the racial framing is on the part of the germans speaking about um about rapes by american or french soldiers because she doesn't seem to treat that as a central part of the story or ask any questions about why that's going on, I think there's a, a large part of the analysis of analysis that's, or insight that, that's missing. Like, um, to what extent are these witnesses framing it this way because that is how Nazi propaganda has trained them to see the, the concept of rape as with the sort of racial dynamics of the way that the rapes in the East were talked about. To what extent are 
German local authorities who are trying to appeal to French or American occupation authorities, trying to pick and choose rapes committed by um, non-white men because they think that the racism of those occupying authorities will make it more likely that those cases will be listened to. And in, in that respect, you, you draw an interesting comparison between this book and a, and a book that came a few years earlier, which treats the same subject and the same period, but in, in French history. So it, it seems important to point out that although this is a very controversial book, it's it's an area that has been written about before, although perhaps not for such a mainstream audience. Is that is that one of the differences? This is true that there was a, um, a book by Mary Louise Roberts about um, about France and um Issues. It, it does. It does. It ago. it seems particularly worth 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 talking about now, though, because towards the, the end of your piece, you you make it clear that the the sort of there's a legacy, a mo- very modern legacy of, of the way that that Germany confronts this and ha- and has confronted it most recently. This this sort of thing. Germany had never gone through the process of overhauling these laws to integrate the concept of consent into them, and was still using a very outmoded notion of physical resistance um, being necessary. So the two things that happened that um, prompted this conversation were first the sexual assaults at the Cologne train station on New Year's Eve in 2015 and the realization after that that a lot of what had happened was not in fact illegal. And then secondly, there was a very high profile rape trial in which a reality star named Gina-Lisa Lofink accused two men of rape who had filmed her having sex with them, and in the video she is heard saying no and stop it. And that did not meet the legal standard of sexual assault, and she was in fact fined for having made false accusations. That's um, that's extraordinary. What happened then? Then the law was changed. Um, Then there was really a a, a massive public outcry. Um, There was a sort of... Twitter campaign, uh, nine heist nine, uh, no means no, and um, the Bundestag, the parliament, uh, did change the law, and there's sort of an ongoing process now of examining the, the sexual harassment laws too. So, so um, what you're saying there is that this, this, the, trying to struggle with notions of post-war rape feeds into a whole national conversation about a struggle to protect women that's gone on for the following 70 years. Right. So whether the question that, that Gebhardt poses at the end of her book, which I think is really compelling, is, okay, if you have a country that has this, this huge mass of sort of unprocessed rape trauma and these, all these untold stories, unspoken experiences that are just sort of lingering in an, in an unprocessed way, how does that affect a society over time? And, and how does it affect sort of um, relationships between the sexes generally? And how does it affect the society in other ways? So I feel like that's a very timely question in light of this examination of the country's um, sexual assault laws. Jane, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. That's a, that's a great uh, point to leave it on. Thank you so much. That is um, all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Jane Yeager, Michael Rosen and Jim Campbell. Do go to the-tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the TLS, which also includes an exclusive essay by Eula Biss on racial identity 
and a truly excruciating murder mystery party, as well as some provocative pieces on Les Mis, unforgettable women writers, and how the internment of Japanese citizens in America might impact on the policies of Donald Trump. Tweet this podcast at FBFM underscore podcast with your comments and suggestions and join us next week where we may bring you Shakespeare and the economics of women, if you are lucky. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.